0: This episode of Medic Mindset is supported by iSimulate. From the very beginnings of this podcast, I've been committed to keeping Medic Mindset always and forever free. Their support allows me to do that. Thank you, iSimulate. Feedback happens at the intersection of the learner's desire to improve and their desire to maintain their identity. Both of those desires run deep and educators have to thread the needle right between those two things Um, So take good care with them. A medic fully engaging, feeling safe to talk about their process in order to fix the whole system. I want to talk big vision here for future of feedback, what this is going to look like five, 10, 20 years from now. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. The research and QI manager for Seattle Medic One, Dr. Katherine Counts, invited me to speak at the University of Washington's EMS Grand Rounds. The target audience are EMS fellows at the University of Washington, but all learners were welcomed. This year, I'm diving headfirst into the topic of feedback. I'm going to read everything I can find about it, and I've been tweeting my thoughts on the topic because I want to see if I'm on track. My idea is that in EMS, feedback is scarce, particularly for working paramedics. And I want to sort out why this is and how we can create a culture in EMS of healthy feedback. I hope you'll follow me on Twitter. You can find me. I'm at GingerlockATX. Here's the talk on feedback. If you've never heard of Gingerlock, you should. She's a total badass in the industry. She trains paramedics uh, in the Austin, Texas region and then also kind of probably more on uh, vogue with the cohort here, she runs the Medic Mindset podcast. So we're going to let her take it from here. Thank you for the introduction, Dr. Counts, and the invitation to come along. This is kind of meta because it's a picture of a Zoom call. So this slide is from a pre-conference course that I taught with Dr. Maya Dorset, And we were Attempting to teach medical directors or training officers, FTOs, preceptors, uh, how to educate adults. And we had about four hours, and we picked off a couple of, of topics. And at the beginning, kind of our whole theme, the concept was, and this is these are words from Dr. Dorset. She tried to define why we uh, enter adult education. She said, and I, I subscribe to this, the purpose of adult education, is to inspire people to change and to empower them to do so. She challenged us to think of which educator in our, you know, many people in that room have long educational histories, which educator had done that for them. And at first glance, you kind of think, you know, which educator did I like the most or who did I enjoy the most or who did I connect with the most? But in the context of asking who inspired you to change uh, and who empowered you to do that, I came up with a preceptor on one of my very 1st ride write-outs. I had only had this one interaction with her. It was just one ride out very early in my paramedic education. She did something different than what I had experienced in previous ride alongs Previous ride alongs we'd go on a call, we'd come back to the station. They'd say things like, you're doing fine. You know, you're at the level where you should be at, at this point in your career. Very vague feedback, reassuring, but vague feedback. And this preceptor did something different. She gave me feedback that was very specific. It was very timely. We would return from a call. She'd give me feedback. I could go on the very next call and and try to implement that. And she left me with a plan on what I wanted to change to be better with the very next call. So she gave me this message of, of feedback of content, but then she also gave me a message that I was worth the time, right? I was worth the time for her to give me that, that feedback. The title of this talk is Finding Feedback. Uh, I think we're searching for it in EMS. I think there is not enough. And I I have some theories about why we don't get very much feedback, and I want to share those with you. There's a picture of an elevator button here. That comes from uh, a book that I read called The Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman. He's a designer who looks at how humans interface with just everyday objects. Key thesis in this book is that feedback Is a key feature in all design. And that feedback will channel the user to using the device correctly and also reassure the user that they're using it correctly. And in this book, he says that if a user doesn't get feedback within 0.1 seconds of using a device, anyways, that is disorienting. It's disconcerting. And so you think of an elevator button. All right, you walk up to the elevator, you're with a friend, you're in a mid conversation, you push the button. The button lights up. It says we're going up. Both of you know we're going up. You never have to discuss that step. You can just continue on with your regular conversation. Now, change that story to I push the button. We're mid conversation and the button doesn't light up. Now we have to stop our conversation. We have to ask ourselves Did I push it hard enough? Is the indicator light broken? Is the elevator broken? Does this elevator only go down? right you're suddenly lost in this system without a very simple feedback and i think feedback in medical education is just like that the big idea of this talk is that there is not enough feedback in ems education or for ems providers uh, that are out practicing i think there is a tremendous scarcity of feedback anecdotally i know this from my own experience in the field i remember leaving school where there was daily you know constant feedback to entering the field where I would go sometimes months without feedback. At least not feedback from a peer or an expert or somebody who kind of knew the field, right? I, I got feedback from patients, but deliberate feedback from colleagues, there, it was just a vacuum. It, it didn't happen. I know this from my own experience. I know this from talking to paramedics about their experiences in the last six years of recording the podcast. And there's evidence for this. Dr. Remley Crowe, Dr. Cash were able to tell us that nearly half, nearly half of over like 15,000 respondents in this survey, nearly half reported not receiving feedback on their medical care in a 30-day period. So for a whole month, all of these calls, they received zero feedback in the th- in the 30 days prior. A third of all of the providers didn't receive any type of feedback on anything, safety, you know, operations, anything for 30 days. Uh, So I think the evidence supports that there is a lack of of feedback. When I think about kind of our calls, the ones we run on, to me, it has a bell-shaped curve. This is kind of my mental construct. Uh, On the left, we've got these uh, really tough, tough calls. On the right, the really great calls that go really well. The middle is kind of the average day-to-day calls where nothing really heroic or terrible happens. I think we get feedback when you look at the left side. I think we get feedback for serious adverse events, patient complaints, errors uh, contributing to safety problems. I think we get some of those when they're big kind of landmark events. And then on the right side, I think we do get feedback for these heroic things, you know, CPR saves. But the middle the day-to-day performance, it's kind of unknown how we're doing. It's this middle bread and butter of our work is generally uh, ignored. I think this is getting a little bit better uh, from when I was practicing to now with better um, electronic PCRs and data collection. It's it's easier for systems to generate reports. Uh, For example, I talked to a medic last week who said she gets to know every month, she gets sent a report that tells her How often she's getting a blood glucose level on patients she categorizes as clinical impression stroke. The expectation is that's 100% of the time, right? And she's able to to see how she and her partner are doing on those calls. So I think it's getting better uh, with more and more data. But data can actually only get us so far, right? Because data looks at outcomes and actions, not as perfect at looking at process. Why is this bad? Why is this bad that we're not getting feedback? I think it's kind of obvious, right? That we've, you know, the people on this call are high performers, right? We're, we're seeking expertise. We know that we've had teachers, coaches by our side, giving us feedback to get to where you are today. So I think we inherently know that feedback is part of the process of expertise, but it's also a part of, and we find this out from Dr. Crow's work, it's correlated with Burnout. The EMS professionals who received performance feedback, for those who did receive performance feedback from a supervisor, there was a 64% reduction in odds of burnout, right? So the use of these available benchmarks, performance feedback, face time with the leadership, these things have been shown to reduce burnout. And I know we, I know we care about burnout. So how do we build a culture of feedback? I get these questions sometimes of, you know, how do we build a culture? And that's such a hard one. Culture is really just a collection of hundreds of tiny little interactions. You may already exist in a culture. You may already be working somewhere where there's just kind of this culture of feedback where it's constantly kind of flowing, right? Everybody's talking to each other. You're looking at reports. You're looking at outcomes. You're noticing when people do things well. But if you're not sure there are three things I think you can kind of ask yourself, does this exist where I work or where I go to school to decide if you are currently in a culture of feedback? The first is, is feedback, right? These learning discussions, is it flowing constantly? You know, am I getting positive and negative feedback? And is it happening in all directions? Is it peer to peer educator to learner learner back to educator? Is there this kind of open discussion where it's normalized and normalized uh, across hierarchy is a key indicator, I think, of a culture of feedback. Another is how often are you hearing positive feedback, right? So when I first started digging into feedback, I came across a doctor who works at Sydney Hems, her name's Natalie May. And she kind of has this three to one rule that says over the course of a relationship, right? So two people in one relationship over the course of that relationship, months, years, the ratio ideally would be about three positive interactions or positive feedbacks for every negative one. We know the bad calls are going to happen. They will come. If we can build up that emotional bank, that bank of positivity, when that call comes, that trust is established. The problem is that the three to one does not currently exist It's very rare to find that because uh, right now our leaders are busy putting out fires, right? There's, there's only so many of them. It's not really baked into the culture yet. And so when we hear feedback, it's often uh, negative. What that means is we kind of have to come into the relationship with setting the intentionality of kind of gratitude. I'm planning to f- see good things and, and report positive things back as well. We put too much on the bosses though. This is this, this really can come from peer-to-peer feedback, right? To build up this, this bank. So silence isn't feedback, right? And that's kind of what my experience was in the early years of being a paramedic. I kind of didn't hear much unless something was going wrong. I talked to a medic the other day and she said she got an email from her QA saying good job on this particular call. And she said she kept just scrolling, scrolling through this email trying to find the negative feedback and there was nothing there. I think that really speaks to the fact that that that's not been her norm. It's great that they did it, but that's not been normalized experience where they're getting these kind of positive feedback. The three-to-one is just a I think it's just people kind of throwing numbers. I, there is no evidence behind that. In fact, um, there have been other people say 10 to 1. At a minimum, right, we need we need a balance there, right, is, is the concept. One caveat b- before I start kind of talking about the procedure of giving feedback. So I'm talking about formative educational experiences, not summative evaluation, right? So whenever I'm giving examples of feedback here, I'm not talking about testing environments, just uh, just the everyday kind of feedback for the work that we do. Some rules of engagement as you begin feedback. The first is, and this came from Natalie May from Sydney Hems, is before you enter these feedback conversations, go through a little checklist, okay? A little pause here. We're pretty checklist happy in medicine, so hopefully this resonates with you. First ask, is this feedback desired? Usually kind of in the normal setting, educator to student, it's kind of assumed it's coming. But sometimes we get requests for feedback from peers. This happens kind of frequently for me. Somebody will send me like a CV or a paper or presentation and it'll just say, can you give me feedback on this? When I hear the word feedback, I slow down because i want to be sure i'm giving them the feedback they desire right so i will dial it in even tighter and ask what specific feedback are you looking for here because if i start digging into grammar errors and they're looking for something else that could be kind of alienating dial in is it desired at all right and then what specific feedback is is appropriate and if they didn't ask for feedback at all or it's not presumed as part of the relationship hit the brakes <laughs> that's good Parenting advice, relationship advice in general, right? Uh, Usually this will come from a request for feedback. Make sure it's desired before you start. Is the feedback necessary? This is a tough one. Let's imagine just a simulation, right? A simulation debrief. Simulations are usually built around a couple of learning objectives, but we've watched 20, 30 minutes of performance, and it's very tempting to go through every single step and critique every single step and have an opinion about every single step. I believe that's an error to do that. We really need to be dialing into specific errors or positive performance that was centered around the learning objectives and just limit it to one or two things. And that sounds kind of crazy because we want to cram all this education into this activity, but if they leave with 20 things that are kind of fuzzy, because the human brain can only absorb so much. Hold. you're literally holding back some feedback sometimes. It's not necessary to give feedback on all things uh, and only giving it for the the couple of points that you really want to hammer home. Is this the right time or place right after a bad call? We're going to wait. Before we give any feedback about performance, we need to check in with how they are. Are you okay? With high stakes testing and things like that, I actually don't try to give a ton of feedback. I'll let them know pass, fail. But once I've said the word pass or fail, Their brain is, if it's a pass, they're like, great, relaxed, kind of moving on. If it's a fail, it's kind of flooding with emotions. They're just not open to that feedback. The place that you choose to do this. There's a lot of discussion and feedback science about, should this be done publicly or privately? We're going to touch on some of that as we dig into types of feedback. A quiet place is good if you can find it in emergency medicine, right? A non-distracting environment. The timing seems to be really, really key because when is their brain open to this feedback and when can they really absorb it? I think of an example of uh, from this semester, a first semester student during the first week, they were wearing a t-shirt that had some type of, you know, very subtle, but inappropriate. The very first day that they're with us, as much as I wanted to give feedback about that, that wasn't the day. That was not the right time. I needed to build up the bank a little bit. I needed to get them to know me, get them to know that I like them as a person, and then the next time they wear it, um, give them feedback. I I had to hold that back. And it seems benign to me because I just want to nip it in the bud and, hey, we don't wear T-shirts like that. But if you think about their perspective on that day, It's their first day, their first week of paramedic school. They're asking themselves really big questions about identity. Do I fit in here? Is this, you know, nurturing environment here? Timing Timing seems to be really key with feedback and more often than not, slowing down the feedback. Ask yourself, am I the right person to give this feedback? If you notice you're emotionally charged by whatever, you know, behavior that you're wanting to give feedback on, you're probably not the right person. If someone were to make a slur against some minority group to which I belong, I am not the person to give that feedback, at least not after, you know, until I have some sleep, right? So ask yourself, am I the right person to do that? Because there's others, right, that, that can that can do it. So this is Crystal Yates. She's the commissioner of EMS in Philly. I like this picture because I think I can kind of look at her and imagine, you know, all the educators she had along, along the way um, and think about, you know, what type of feedback would just your everyday medic, what type of feedback do they need, right? What, are, what type of feedback are they seeking? I think I can chunk it into they want feedback on the hands-on skills, right? They want to know that they're good at intubating and starting IVs and the psychomotor part of the job. They should get feedback on behaviors that shape culture or safety practices. And then, of course, clinical decision-making, right? How they're thinking through calls, So I want to pick through these three because the feedback actually kind of looks different depending on what you're giving them feedback on. So psychomotor is actually, to me, the most straightforward. It's kind of the least emotionally charged. We know that feedback for psychomotor skills is best with an expert coach right by their side. The next best would be feedback from a peer, so long as that peer has like a really detailed task analysis with the best practices outlined. Video is great here. The coach can't be by the side. Some video for them to do self-analysis. The feedback for psychomotor uh, should be prompt. It's a very swift stop. So we don't let them keep practicing the skill down the line from uh, an error in their process. We stop We rewind the tape. We're growing, literally growing neurons here as we're learning new psychomotor skills. So you want those to grow correctly, laying down that, uh, that framework. Right, we don't want them to learn to ride the bike wrong. So, very prompt feedback here, and remember, positive feedback here too. So, if you imagine starting an IV, let's say it has like twenty steps. It has more, but let's just imagine twenty steps to an IV. As the student is or the learner is sitting next to me, as they're going through steps that are correct, it is often that you'll hear me saying things like, "Hmm, good. I like it. Yes." right? I'm reassuring, reassuring, reassuring. It is okay to reassure our learners. I think sometimes in EMS, we think that we need to kind of let them stand on their own two feet because they're going to have to think independently and not be that safety net. I think there is a place for that. But in the initial learning of skills, if you want them to learn it efficiently and them being relaxed and reinforcing the positive things they do, that's just like the, the elevator button here. They can know, okay, okay, I'm on the right track. I'm on the right track. Wait, stop. So when you do say stop, it's not abrupt. They've just been hearing you kind of running monologue next to them for a period of time. They know you're you're there giving feedback versus quiet, 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 stop. It's kind of alarming. Be specific with the feedback, right? So psychomotor, that's kind of obvious, right? We can get really down into the details of angles and things like that, um, but be, be very specific about what they do well or what they need to improve. Sometimes I'm walking around the classroom, students are practicing on an IV arms. And I'll see somebody doing something that I really like. And I'll come by and say, I like how you're, how you're anchoring on the skin, just like that. That's Because when they move, right, you're going to move with them. And that specific feedback is for all to hear. They pick up new good habits as a result of that. So I'm talking about how I'm going around giving positive feedback. This is um, something I probably did for a very long time, but I've kind of recently learned as I've dug more into feedback that we have to be very careful with praise. There's a peril to praise. So praise actually isn't feedback. Praise is commentary on who they are as a person. So feedback is about process, right? Steps, objective things. Praise can accidentally... Kind of venture into the world of commenting on character and things like that. So be very, very careful how you give positive feedback, and that it doesn't look like praise. Additionally, if we were to say things like "You're natural at this," right, or "Wow, how are you already so good at this? You must, you know, you're just gifted." That type of praise can push them towards a fixed mindset, which Carol Dweck tells us in her book Mindset. That's what we want to avoid for learning right? Where they think that their abilities are fixed. Instead, we want them in the growth mindset where they know that they're always kind of growing, um, working towards expertise. It's that, that abilities are not binary. All right, so be careful with the praise. We don't want to put them on a pedestal. Then it becomes a little paralyzing for them for future performance. Give feedback on the performance. Don't praise the person. Some rules of engagement for when there is some type of action that's had some type of threat to culture or safety of your department, uh, for your patients, for each other, this is when they've really stepped out of bounds, okay? And it's, it's when kind of objectively many onlookers would say, yep, we know that, that's outside of bounds. Remember, again, this can be, this is feedback that should go in all directions, positive and neg- negative in all directions, up and down the hierarchy, When there's a threat to culture or safety, this is sometimes the 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 feedback has to be public because of what the event or the action happened in public. Right. And we're standing there, right? We can't walk past this standard type thing. Feedback here can sometimes be public. There is a risk to the relationship by doing that, but the benefit is you're teaching the whole audience about the expected actions. It should be prompt. We can't sit on this info. Um, these are the difficult conversations. This is really when it's difficult. These people are us. The, the people that, you know, unfortunately made a, a bad decision that day, that was a threat to culture or safety. They're still us, right? So no cold shoulder here. In fact, sometimes they get more of me. Sometimes I lean a little bit more into them to make sure they know that my my frame is, yeah, like you messed up big time here, but I still like you as a person. You might lead here with, are you Okay right these can be scary scary events so the piece that will save the relationship is kind of maintain that humanity of let's start with is everybody okay right so stay connected to them immediately after the feedback stay connected uh, and and re kind of connect in that that way of like two people coming together I think a lot of medics are looking for feedback on their clinical decision-making. I think this is when I've talked to medics, this is what they wonder the most about. Did I do the right thing on that call? What was the outcome? Was the patient comfortable? Did the, did the family, you know, were they happy with what I did? Would another medic have done it the same way? These are questions medics are asking, and they don't know the answers. So there's a lot of instability in this system, as it is right now, without a lot of feedback. So when we look at decisions on calls or simulated calls, decision-making happens in people's, inside their heads, (laughs) okay? So we can't know what's going on in their head by simply watching their actions. And that's why you have to get them talking out loud about their thought process. We would never give feedback from simply just reading a chart alone. That's not enough data because all we see are charted actions. We don't know the intentions behind the actions. So the first step of feedback... Just ask a question. So before you start talking, you're actually, you need more info. So get curious. We want to uncover uh, the frame, right? We want to know their frame of reference. Now, you may have seen their actions or read about their actions, right? But you don't know the thought process behind the actions. You're having some hi- a hypothesis. You've got a theory about what's going on on this call. You don't need to pretend that you don't have a hypothesis. In fact, you can kind of start there. I read this, I saw this. And then it made me wonder if you were thinking this during this part of the call, tell me about it, right? That's the conversation starter. I kind of was wondering this. It looked like this from here, but I wasn't there. Tell me about it. Collect more data. This is a little bit like differential diagnosis, right? The more data we can get uh, the better. And then remembering we, we might be wrong, right? We're working towards expertise, but, Very rarely is there a perfect expert and novice in these scenarios. Both parties bring a a little blend of of expertise. We're not really looking at actions. We wanna know their intentions. So get curious with your hypothesis. Listen first. Again, two to three takeaways is plenty. So after our SIMS, uh, leave them with two that really, really stick rather than kind of watered down 10. And then this is probably the piece, if you take anything away from this talk, this is the piece that transformed how I give feedback. It's when I learned about how feedback can be threatening to someone's identity. Identity is the story we tell ourselves about who we are and what the future holds for us. Feedback, particularly negative feedback, attacks that story, right? We're telling ourselves a story. We have a goal. We want to look a certain way in the future. We're growing towards something. And feedback can be a direct attack on that story. Remember, this is clinical decision-making. This is their practice of medicine. This is intimately tied to their identity, uh, especially our seasoned medics. So this can be identity kind of threatening. This is another time you might start with, there's a bad patient outcome that can be devastating, right? So this could be another time we start with, are you okay? Feedback happens at the intersection of the learner's desire to improve and their desire to maintain their identity. Both of those desires run deep and educators have to thread the needle right between those two things because our professions can sometimes become a surrogate for who we are as a whole person. Um, So take good care with them. How do you do that? How do you take good care with them? During the learning conversation, you stay alert for what to you is a benign topic, right? It doesn't, uh, it's not emotionally entangled for you. So you're just there. Stay alert for them and their response And assess whether or not you might be entering what's been called a crucial conversation. What's a crucial conversation? A crucial conversation is when two people are talking and the receiver or both start having to do dual processing. They can't just hear the content. They're now also having to deal with an emotional content. The conversation in their head goes from, do you just simply like this decision I made on this call? To now all of a sudden do you like me as a person this is really high stakes all right so feedback uh for these types of crucial conversations always always ideally face to face this is stuff i think we've all learned particularly during uh the pandemic when we can get face to face for this stuff so much better because i can see the softness in your body language the sincerity in your face Uh, virtual meetings. I've been doing these more with students. Um, when I need to give feedback after like, we'll, we'll sim in the morning, I'll kind of, you know, give them some feedback, but then I'll, I'll loop back around to, to them in a virtual call later in the day, just so we can talk some more, uh, phone calls are certainly on the list, but lower and then email dead, dead last. We hate the email for feedback. So remember, we're observing data, right? We made the data maybe a a chart. It may be watching a sim. It may be on an actual call that we're standing right there at their side. No matter what we see, there's an unconscious translation. It's unconscious. We're not aware we're doing it. We see objective data, but our brain quickly assigns meaning to what we see. And we create interpretation, which may or may not be correct, even with our own eyes. So here's how we walk through this. You want to focus on specific actions, right? Not the assumed intentions of the action. So you state your frame. Begin with, I have limited info here, but here's kind of what I was seeing. Here's my frame. How do you see it? Learn their frame. As you all start comparing frames, this exposes gaps in both of your schematics. You kind of overlay them and agree on an accepted frame. The last step make a plan. You just did all this work, right? You, you did a long simulation. You had this long debriefing or, um, you did this huge, long kind of cognitive autopsy where you pick through all these decision points and what were they thinking at various times? How were they moved forward? We've done all this work. I kind of liken it to discharge instructions at the hospital. It's like, we've spent hours in the ER, all this examination um, we don't want them to leave without understanding what's going on with them and an agreed upon care plan. Inspire them to make change that's what the preceptor did for me uh with her feedback. Inspire them to make change through a difficult conversation made less difficult by talking about perspectives. You will encounter defensive receivers of feedback you've probably been a d- defensive receiver of feedback. I certainly have just this week right It's because we all have baggage we we've had parents and coaches and teachers and all these interactions with feedback that really didn't follow a a great procedure. A conversation can be difficult. In advance of that conversation, the very best tip I have is to build up the relationship before it, right? So as you walk into this, this conversation, you already are meeting at the place where you know you like each other. These are three of the books that I looked at in the making of this, this lecture, Peak Peek a- uh, Erickson talks to us about psychomotor or mastery. Difficult conversations is a really great one for uh, when you know people have had these kind of serious adverse events. And then thanks for the feedback is a good one for kind of cognitive or clinical reasoning. Feedback is a procedure. It's a procedure and it's learner-focused. It's not what we want to say, but rather what they need to hear. Walk into these conversations with a plan. If you're just going to start talking, right, and not have a plan, things can get sideways pretty quick, right, as they start doing that dual processing and whatnot. There was a, kind of an old rule. I think it's the Pendleton rule, uh, this critique sandwich where we would say something positive, then something negative, and then always end with something positive. I think those intentions are good, and it is a framework. Um, but I, honestly, I think adult learners kind of see through that. It looks artificial, As you approach it as a procedure, it is good to have a framework of what you want that conversation to look like, but it really needs your own style and a style that matches the learner, right? So I think everyone will look a little different, even though there are some good procedural rules. So just kind of rehash what the procedure can look like first. Ask, right? We're asking, we need more data. We need firsthand data to eliminate all this inference, we want to seek the context, the frame, uncover the intentions behind their, what we observed, then discuss. I noticed this. When you did this, I wondered what you were thinking here. What was happening for you during this part of the call? You're going to cross over these frames, kind of come to an agreement, and then ask again, what are we, how are we going to move forward? What's our plan for how we want to do this differently? Or keep it the same after after the debrief. All right, a plan after, after you've done all this work. The plan should be specific, pretty detailed, measurable, right? We need to know if we've achieved our goal. It's achievable, right? So not taking two a steps at once, timely. So I think about the medic that gave me feedback on that write-out. I had an opportunity at the very next call to just work on what she had told me, right? In little small chunks, right? And it had to be realistic. Her feedback was not run the whole call. It was at the beginning of the call, I need you to tell us what equipment to take on onto each individual scene, right? It was really clear, really specific uh, and measurable. So if you'll indulge me a bit, I want to talk big vision here, okay? For future of feedback, what this is going to look like five, 10, 20 years from now. I think we'll see more peer-to-peer feedback, probably with some guided discussions, more use of video. In, In my pipe dream, we would have coaches right next to the side on actual calls, and then kind of regular, public, semi-public case reviews. So I want to pick these apart. So this peer-to-peer idea, this has to be the idea because our supervisors can't be everywhere, right? They're simply not keeping up with getting the feedback to the medics. Peer-to-peer feedback can work great so long as these are guided discussions. So providing some type of tool for them to work through uh, the discussion. It's interesting if you go back to Dr. Crow's work on burnout when they looked at kind of disparities and who's getting feedback and who isn't. Our aeromedical crews were getting I don't I don't remember if it was 3x 5x the amount of feedback from uh, ground medics. They were the cohort that were as compared to like EMTs, paramedics, um depending on if it was hospital based, fire based, kind of looked at all these different. It was the aeromedical crews who were saying they got the most feedback. And I think, I think we can kind of theorize that that might be because HEMS crews, aeromedical crews are required to do safety checks. They're required to have some of these discussions kind of for aircraft safety. And so I think those start blending into and normalizing discussions about patient care as well, right? So I think more and more uh, working towards, you know, educating every medic how to do some peer-to-peer feedback. It will become baked into the culture. I think we can use video a lot more <clears throat> than we do. So these are two still images from, these are actual videos uh, from the classroom just this semester. So on the, on the left with the airway uh, mannequin, I think I have time to kind of tell you about how I incorporated video into feedback. So this was two future paramedics working on advanced airway procedures. They have a task analysis uh, that somebody who's not in frame uh, is reading off the steps. They do them one by one, stopping as we go along. And one of the jobs of the person holding the stethoscope, one of their jobs as the person that placed the airway is to coach their partner to ventilate at an appropriate rate. Um, His partner was ventilating too fast. He appropriately told him, you know, slow down your bagging. He gave him feedback. Slow down your bagging but uh, his partner didn't do it for whatever reason, right? Maybe he's nervous. Maybe he doesn't know the actual rate. We don't know. All I saw was the action, uh, ventilating too fast, but I don't know. Is he nervous? Uh, did he not hear him? Uh, does he not know the right rate? Has he not been trained to kind of look at his watch? And He doesn't have this muscle memory yet of what it feels like to back slower. One student gave the other student feedback to slow down, and, and he didn't do it. So then a couple of, you know, 20 seconds later, he's still bagging fast. And I tell him, slow down your bagging. You're bagging too fast. Still doesn't do it. And so I'm thinking to myself, huh, like what is happening for this student? Uh, So then I tell him the appropriate rate and then he might look at his his watch. And he just never could really get there. And so that's when I brought in video. And they're used to me videoing stuff. So just held up my phone and videoed it. Once they were done we looked at the video together and I said, you know, watch how fast you're squeezing this bag. This is, you know, once every two seconds, we're looking for much slower. And he said, I see it. I see what you're talking about. Thank you. And it, uh, he actually received the feedback quite well. He was able to see himself from a different perspective. The picture on the screen's right is of an Ivy Stark on a live stick. And this was uh, a graduate of our program who's been out in the field for, I think, eight to 10 years. And I think this story is really worth telling because there's a lot to, to get from it. We are close friends. I was also, had been their teacher a, a decade ago. And they called and they said, I need to talk to you like face to face. I need to talk to you about some stuff going on at work. Naturally thinking this is probably more related to, you know, something difficult that's happened on a call. Never was not prepared for them to tell me they said, I'm, I'm, this is embarrassing to say, but I, I, for something has happened. And for the last two years, I can't get my IVs. And there was crying. Right. And this was to me like small things like, okay, start an IV. Like, cool. Let's go up to the lab and let's, let's knock this out. Let's figure out what the problem is. But for them, it was entangled in their whole identity of being a paramedic. They said, I can't get down any of my care plans. I'm not a parent. I'm effectively not a paramedic right now because I can't do advanced life support. Uh, and it was very emotionally kind of charged. Uh, so a couple of days later we met in the lab and worked on a mannequin. We identified the problem was related to a new catheter and, and pulling pulling back too early before threading the catheter. So they kind of were losing their stylet. They would get flash, but they lose the stylet with the with the needle. I saw, I knew what it was the second I saw it. Very easy to fine-tune. Uh, we videoed them doing it incorrectly and then correctly, and, and they could see better, right? This Look at the perspective. Imagine you're starting this IV. Your hand's literally in the way, right? So to see it from another perspective, video really, really helped here and uh, fixed them. There's another place where video might come into play, because remember, we're thinking pipe dream, futuristic here. Uh, And that's with body cams, And when that's particularly kind of a contentious topic, I don't really need to have an opinion one way or the other, but for learning, I do have an opinion. And the opinion is if we're just looking at learning, not the patient's experience and all the protected health information implications, but just for learning, I think things could get uh, pretty efficient with call reviews, with with actual video footage. Lots to consider there though. I've mentioned it a couple of times, this idea of having a coach on the call. Right? So when I worked for FedEx for a year, I had high performing. Del- I did delivery. I had a high performing delivery person come right out with me. I think it was quarterly, and they would watch my process. You know, we'd run around and do stuff together, and they would talk to me about how to shave off minutes here and there. We need this in medicine. Doctor Atul Gawande, a very well-known author and surgeon, he wrote this piece in the New Yorker, and he talked about bringing in a coach, another surgeon. Into surgery with him to give him a different set of eyes. And the things that he learned after, you know, I think a decade of being a surgeon, he learned things he was doing. Some of the specifics were like how his gown was draping into the field and things like that. He invited a coach into his world just to get that extra little level up. Uh, Dr. Dorsett in Rochester is doing public or semi public case reviews regional case reviews. These are closed because of protected health information, kind of intimate setting for, for medics. And she discusses good and not good calls. The medic involved in the call becomes the expert. And through this process of generating this case review in collaboration with Dr. Dorset, that medic becomes kind of the expert who works to fix the system. These are a force multiplier. The benefit of these is that everyone watching this is a public showing of feedback, and if it's done well, this is a public showing of what psychological safety and feedback can look like. This is not anonymous. This is not the medics, you know, in the back of the room and their charts up on the f- overhead and they're just talking about them like th- they're not there, right? This is not anonymous. This is fully a medic, fully engaging, feeling safe to talk about their process in order to fix the whole system, and what we know about grief is, right, if the, when calls go sideways, what she's effectively done for those medics is by working to fix the system, now they've created meaning, right, for their error, right? So we're also helping with grief. These are not just M&Ms. It's not just morbidity and mortality. This is also ANAs, right? Awesome and amazing cases. So big idea here. We need a lot more feedback in EMS. Uh, the medics are craving it. I think it would bring up the profession as a whole. There's some indication that it would decrease burnout. And I think the thing stopping it, a lot of it is our uncomfortability with these difficult conversations. So if we can learn the principles of feedback, normalize it into the environment where coaching is just kind of constant, flowing all directions, um, we'll be on our way. Medics are wondering, where am I in the system? How am I doing? They don't even know where they are. The references for a lot of the studies, uh, some links to the studies. If you want to go to medicmindset.com, there's a whole blog post related to finding feedback. You'll find the elevator button. Thank you so much.